Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and take our seats, or return to our seats, I should say. And when you get to your seats, open your Bibles to the first chapter of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And if you're able, please stand while the scripture is read. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. On Friday was the March for Life in Washington, D.C. And Jean Mancini, the president of March for Life, said, quote, we are not done We will keep marching every January at the national level as well as in our states until our nation's laws reflect the basic truth that all human life is created equal and worthy of protection. We will march until abortion is unthinkable. Another marcher from Maryland, Lesek Siski, attending his 50th March for Life, said, quote, ultimately, we don't want to just make abortion illegal. We want to make it unthinkable. And in some ways, our sermon this morning is an attempt to to do that, to make sure that in our minds and in our hearts, for the people that we have some influence over, it's unthinkable, that the sin of abortion would be unthinkable. This March for Life is the second one since the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court in June of 2022. And that decision effectively took away the ban on abortion uh, uh, laws by the states. And so since that time, then, the, the laws affecting abortion in the U.S. are covered by the states. So 50 states with 50 different sets of laws. And as you might guess, there's an enormous variety of laws about abortion in these 50 states. Now, most or at least many states, went back to laws that were in the books before Roe v. Wade in 1973. And most of the laws in all 50 states, actually, were 
uh, a total ban on abortion. Uh, now, some changed their laws to make abortion more easy, more friendly in their states. Others became more restrictive. 14 states of the 50 have uh, banned abortion entirely, with just a few exceptions. Two states ban abortion at six weeks. North Carolina is considered, depending on the, on the website you go to, either very pro-abortion or very hostile to abortion. A pro, um, pro-life, I should say, or hostile to abortion. North Carolina allows abortion up to 12 weeks, which in comparison to other states sounds encouraging, but the reality is that 93% of abortions take place on or before the 13th week. So 12 weeks is only slightly better than that 13-week mark. But in a divided state where you need a majority to pass legislation and sometimes a supermajority, depending on the legislatures and governors, you do your best and you keep fighting. But that's where we are. So clearly there's more work to do in our state and in our country. But this morning we're going to do our, our little part here to equip our army of, of saints to think rightly on these issues, to build our convictions and then pray how God might want us to engage this fight in our state and in our country. Now we've been working through the book of Genesis. We got through Genesis 11 last week. And so what we're going to do this morning is basically ask the question, what do these 11 chapters have to say about the sanctity of life. Now, they have a lot to say about the sanctity of life, so I'm just going to pick four passages, and we've already read one of them from Genesis 1 on the image of God and man, and we'll pick three other passages and, and just reflect on how this, this builds a, an appreciation for the sanctity of life, and it, and it actually gives us a vision for this very comprehensive pro-life community that God wants us to build as the people of God. So four points this morning. We're going to think about personhood from the beginning. And then number two, parenting after the fall. And number three, protecting, the flood, protecting life after the flood. And then four, purpose in our labor. Personhood from the beginning, parenting after the fall, protecting life after the flood, and then purpose in our labor. And as I pray appropriately, we'll pray for uh, a family and their child. We're going to pray for the, the Talbot family. So Ellie is... Their daughter is in the hospital right now. She has uh, pneumonia in both lungs and a, uh, a sinus infection. And that all combined in her is, it was a, it was, it's, it, it was a life-threatening situation. So they went to uh, Big Wake. Uh, she's receiving good care. She'll be there for some days, though. So we're going to pray for them because it's reflective of uh, uh, the children that we want and love. And it's also indicative of... The reality of parenting, parenting is not an easy task. There's heartache attached to parenting. There's, there's no such thing as a, as a cost-free uh, life as a parent. Uh, to embrace a child, to welcome a child into your life is to welcome a hardship, a trial, a profound blessing, yes, but also a hardship. And it's a beautiful hardship, and yet it's indeed a hardship. So we're going to pray for them that God would meet them, heal Ellie, bring her home quickly. So let's pray. Father, we lift up, first of all, this, this cause of abortion in our country, and we do pray that you would help us to think rightly and live rightly according to your word on this issue. 
and whatever amount of influence you give us in our relationships and our workplaces and in our governments, we pray that you would help us to advocate for the cause of life in a right way. And we do pray for the laws in North Carolina and our states. We do pray that they would progressively more and more uh, make it so that abortion is illegal. And yet we do hear, hear those voices who remind us we don't want it to just be illegal. We do want it to be unthinkable. We know that ultimately the battle is, is for hearts and minds. And we pray for the Talbo family this morning. We pray that you would meet them today. Uh, they have received sobering news and yet good news because it's clear and there's a clear path for, uh, for how to treat her. So we are thankful for that. Uh, we pray that you would heal Ellie. We pray that the pneumonia would leave her lungs and that the infection would leave her sinuses. We pray that she would be able to return home to her, her life with her siblings and parents there and return quickly. And we pray for Logan and Katie that you would give them faith and hope and peace and confidence in your presence with them and your will being accomplished in their lives. And we pray that uh, you would give them excellent medical care as long as they're at Wake Med and that uh, you would give them whatever wisdom is needed uh, for, to make decisions along the way. We pray that you would give them good wisdom. But bless them, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Personhood from the beginning, point one. So we start with the beginning of things, and as we've done so often in this series in Genesis, we keep going back to Genesis 1 and 2 because so much is said there that is foundational for Genesis, so much is said there that is foundational for all of life. And in Genesis 1, which Michael read to us, sin has yet to enter the world. And there's nothing like anything like uh, the, the sin of abortion that's there. No relationship has been ruined. No one has ever been victimized. No one has ever been exploited. It is peace. It is harmony. It is, uh, as, as God tells us, it was all very good. It was all very good. Now, Personhood from the beginning uh, speaks to three things, at least, but we're going to hit three. One of those is that we are persons made in the image of God. We are persons made in the image of God. We are unique among all the creatures. God made a huge variety of wonderful, diverse, colorful, puzzling creatures in the garden and throughout the earth. But only one of those creatures was made in his image, and that is us. Adam and Eve were made, and all of us were made, in the image of God. And that's not just true of mature adults like Adam and Eve being made in the image of God, but as John reminded us through Dr. Seuss last week, a person's a person no matter how small. I thought about using that, uh, that, that phrase a lot throughout the sermon, but... Um, I'll use it there maybe a couple more times because it does fit us extremely well for our, for our purpose this morning. But a person's a person no matter how small. And what we would add to Dr. Seuss is this, and if a person's a person, then that person is made in the image of God. So you can hear that, that all are made in the image of God. You can hear that in Genesis 9-6 when we hear this command, God says, whoever sheds, the whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So that's after the fall. Huge diversity of people are living, and yet all of those people are made in God's image. We are all made in God's image. 
And that doesn't become true when we hit a certain age of development, a certain age in our lives. It's not true because we believe in God. It's true of us from conception, from the beginning. From the, from the beginning of the time that we are persons, it's true of us. In Psalm 139, David's wonderful reflection on God's work in his life, he, he thinks about God's presence with him. So, everywhere I go, you are there. And that's not hyperbole. Everywhere I go, you are there. God's knowledge of him, all of my thoughts, all of my words, you know it fully, fully well. Full well. And then, and then he has this great reflection on God as creator in his life. And in some ways, this answers the question, when did King David become a person, become who he is? And the answer we get from Psalm 139 is from the very beginning of his existence. Psalm 139 famously says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And it's the personal pronouns that are important there. My inward parts. My mother's womb. Me. When was me, me? Well, David says it's when he was in his mother's womb. That's when he was never an it. He was always a me. You knitted me together. And so as God was, as, as all those cells were multiplying and, body, and his body parts were being formed and it, it was determined whether he would be good at math or, or languages, all those things, his skin color, his height, all those things, God there was the one doing it, knitting all of those things together just as God intended, just as God wanted. And it's true, he was very physically connected to his mother. He was very connected to his mother's womb. But he was also distinct from his mother, distinct from his mother's womb. He wasn't just a part of her body. He was a person. He just happened to be a person inside of her. So personhood, we are made in the image of God. And then second, about personhood from the beginning, is that we get this call to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. There's a great pro-life vision wrapped up in that. We are, we are to be those who procreate, create life. Now, God's providence is all over that. We, don't, we, we can't control marriage sometimes. And we can't control whether or not we're able to have children or how many children. Or all, there's a hundred providential things about how many children we have and things like that. And certainly that command isn't have as many children as you biologically possibly can. That's not the commandment wrapped up there. But there is a huge attitude conveyed there. There's a vision conveyed there. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, a vision for life. And there's a, there's a vision for the children that God brings into our life, that they are blessings. In many, many places in the Psalms, Psalm 127, Psalm 128 convey that children are a blessing. They are a blessing. Difficulties, inconvenient at times, no doubt. But they are a blessing from the Lord for us. They're part of that very good vision that he, he paints for us in Genesis chapter 1. Interestingly, uh, right now around the world, a lot of governments are trying to figure out the birth rate problem because there's been a declining birth rate for decades in many countries, in fact, most countries. 
And it's not just China, and it's not just Europe, but actually in the U.S., there's a declining birth rate that is, has gotten the attention of some government leaders. And so one U.S. senator actually thought of, of a, a very open immigration policy as a way to solve the birth rate problem in the U.S., because the math just doesn't work for a lot of government programs. Catherine Pakulik is a Harvard professor and Harvard PhD who has eight children of her own. She married a man with six children, and then the two of them had eight more children. And her observation was that it's religious people who have babies. There's, there's a, an amount of difficulty and cost and sacrifice required for parenting, for, for committing yourself to a family, especially a family of, of some size. So that without a faith in God, without belief in God, you simply won't do it. You don't have a category for that kind of sacrificial life without faith in God. But we are those who, who hear God's voice, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You know, there's a, there's a biological part of that. There is a great commission part of that in preaching the gospel, uh, being fruitful spiritually as well as physically. But we do hear the physical part. We want to be pro-life as in our families. And so when it comes to the abortion issue, we do want to know what we're, not just what we're against, which is critical, but we do also want to know what we are for. And so as, as much as God's providence directs us and guides us and allows, we do want to be fruitful uh, and multiply. And then God reminds us that this is all very good. So as marriage and the vision for children is there, as, as vocation and work, uh, the the, the the blessed work of, of planting the garden, expanding the garden of Eden throughout the earth. God's summary statement over that is, this is very good. This is very good. This vision for family and work and harmony and life in harmony with him. This is very good. So that's the first thing about personhood from the beginning. And then we get to parenting after the fall. We don't have any kind of vision of what parenting was like before the fall. There wasn't a child born before the fall. All the children born are born after the fall. And so we, we want to think about that, parenting after the fall. So that very good did not last very long. So the serpent comes along. Eve listens to the serpent. She eats the fruit, or she takes the fruit. She gives some to her husband. The two of them eat. Uh, the fall of man happen, happens. Uh, and this world, which was all very good, suddenly becomes very different. Blessings are still present. God's grace is still present. The creation is still a good creation, and yet there are, there's a curse in it. There's hardship in it. Sin has entered the world. Death has entered the world. It wasn't there before, but now sin and death are there. And everything we are and everything we do gets harder because of that. And parenting is one of those things that gets profoundly affected by, the, by sin, by the fall. So as God is speaking to the serpent and then the woman and then the man, he's, he's speaking uh, uh, punishments for each of them. But what he says to the woman is profound. He says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We have no record of labor and delivery before the fall. But... In case you had any questions about that, labor and delivery are painful. And it traces back to the fall. In pain, you're going to bring forth children. 
and pain, you're going to give birth to children. Commentator John Curid says that woman's condition has been greatly altered because of sin and a fallen world. Her role is the same as it was before the fall, but it has become hard, painful, and frustrating. In 128, man and woman had been given the task of begetting children. Because of man's kind fall into sin, this duty will become laborious and difficult. But as Genesis marches on, you realize that the pain of parenting, the difficulties in parenting, don't stop with just the labor and delivery. The first son born is Cain, and the second son born is Abel. Cain kills Abel, and then Cain becomes an outlaw. Sin and death have affected parenting profoundly. You get to the sons of Noah. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is a foolish son who disrespects, who dishonors his father and is, and is cursed because of it. He's punished because of that. Sin and hardship connected to the parenting task. As a parent, you feel the pains of your children. The ups and downs, the disappointments, the rejections, sometimes the physical suffering, all that affects you as a parent. You're not indifferent to it. You feel it at a very deep level, profoundly so. In fact, no other person other than your spouse perhaps affects you in that, in that kind of visceral, real way. And I bring that up only, only to say that when you're, when you're thinking about the abortion issue, it is, it is important that we not uh, paint a rosier picture than is reality. Parenting is difficult. Inviting a child into the world, committing to that child in the womb, we're not saying that this is a, a pain-free decision. It's profoundly difficult, and in some family or financial situations, it's, it's even greater than I can imagine. But it's true for all of us. Not just some of us, it's true for all of us. Parenting is difficult, profoundly difficult. This isn't the Garden of Eden. This isn't the new heavens and new earth. Parenting is difficult. But we commit to those children, born and unborn, because all people are made in the image of God and because we want to be fruitful and multiply. We want to be pro-life in this comprehensive, broad way. Children are part of the very good vision for this creation that God has. So the pain of parenting. And then number three, protecting life after the flood. As Genesis marches on, we get to the flood of Noah, a very sobering, profound statement of God's displeasure with sin. Sin is multiplying, and in case you had any sense that given enough time, people will get better and more moral. No, they don't. They get worse with time, without the intervention of God. And the flood is just the great declaration that that's true. We trust in God's grace to transform us. We don't trust in humanity just to get better on its own. But in that flood, we see a holy judge punishing sin. But then after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah that remains in effect today. It's a covenant God made with all people, not just those who believe in God, but it's actually a covenant made with all people for all of history. It's still in effect. 
And so there's a, there's a sense in which you can call this a covenant of preservation. God, on his part, God is saying, I won't do that again. The flood that wiped out all humanity except for eight persons, I won't do that again. <clears throat> now, until Christ returns, human history will march on. The four seasons will come. Uh, harvest and, 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 so, and reaping will, will pass. The cycle of, of the harvest will continue. So God promises to preserve what's here. But in this covenant, he also gives a set of commands. And these are sort of basic societal preserving commands. In chapter 9, verses 4 through 7, God says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God, God allows them to eat animals, all plants. You shall not eat flesh with its life, though, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. First command we won't talk about much. <clears throat> Don't eat the blood as you would eat vegetables and as you would eat meats. There's something sacred about, about blood. Life is in the blood in a, in a unique way, a special way. So don't eat that. But then there's this command against murder. And that command gets repeated in the Ten Commandments. It's repeated in the teaching of Jesus by the apostles. It's already in Genesis. The, the Cain and Abel story tells us clearly that, that murder is forbidden and punishable. So God forbids the taking of a life without cause. Now, he actually says that if, if somebody takes a life without cause or wrongly, well, by man shall his blood be shed. So in other words, there's a wrong way to take a life and there's a right way to take a life. The wrong way to take a life is, is sinful vengeance. The, 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 the right way is, a, is an act of societal justice. So in some ways, you have a precursor here to Romans 13. The government has the power of the sword. And can use it according to justice, God's laws of justice. And so the, the capital punishment here, though, is for a capital crime. The capital crime being murder. A monetary fine is not enough. An animal sacrifice is not enough. It's a capital crime, and so the capital punishment is the, is the solution or the, the requirement of justice. A life for a life. And then, and then God echoes that, that command once again to be fruitful and multiply. So that, that is echoing throughout our, our, our Old Testament and in the book of Genesis. Don't wrongfully take a life and be those who build life, who produce life. Samuel Renahan, uh, in reflecting on this covenant with Noah, connects these, these dual commandments. So the be fruitful as well as, as, as no um, illicit murder. Connects them in the cause of abortion. And he says this, in the Noahic Covenant, human societies have two basic and related jobs, to preserve life and to preserve the family. Mankind is to be fruitful and multiply. Society, man looking out for man, should promote human fruitfulness and multiplication. And that multiplication takes place in the context of families. As a result, any society or government that corrupts the family or murders the innocent is a government in direct treason and disobedience to the God of the universe. 
They are abusing the sword entrusted to them by turning it on the innocent rather than the guilty. And is there not a more poignant, convicting, and blatantly sinful example of this in our society than the active, government-funded, government-supported, legal status, pursuit, and protection of abortion? Is there anything more contrary to mankind's basic commission to be fruitful and multiply than to murder our own children and to protect that murder by law? Countries have constitutions or similar founding documents, but there is a more fundamental constitution by which we are all to live, and that is the Noahic covenant governing the common kingdom of mankind. As a society, we must promote, preserve, and protect the life of individuals and the life of the family. These are our most basic commitments. As a result, we must punish the wicked, and we must seek with God's help to exemplify and manifest real loving, thriving families in our homes. Samuel Renahan from his book, The Mystery of Christ, really a great, a great reflection on the, the application of what God says to Noah. Defenders of abortion routinely speak of things like autonomy, autonomy over our sexual and reproductive lives. So the right to an abortion is presented as reproductive rights. And the issue of bodily autonomy or personal freedom would be exactly correct if you were talking about your favorite cheesecake or your preferred clothing or your preferred kind of exercise. And there's all kinds of decisions we can make because we are individuals with some autonomy. And we don't have total autonomy because we're creatures made before a holy God. But we do have some basic bodily autonomy. We, we get that. But that category of personal or bodily autonomy is absolutely wrong when you're talking about abortion. When it's not just the woman's body that's involved, but it's the baby's life. It's the baby's body. There's two bodies there, not one. Totally obvious to us after the baby is born. You hold it. You touch it. Hold it close to you, you love it, you take care of it. But the difference between a baby that you can hold and a baby that's inside of you or inside of a woman, that is hardly any difference at all, is it? It's a difference of a few inches or a few days or the slightest bit of development, but it's hardly any difference at all. That's why it makes perfect sense that in our, in our New Testament, One Greek word is used for these two different passages, this Greek word brephos. It's used in both of these examples. The first is from Elizabeth and Mary. So when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the brephos, the baby, leaped in her womb. So John the Baptist is in her womb. And at that point, he's a brephos, he's a baby. And then a few chapters later in the book of Luke, They were bringing to Jesus, even infants, that he might touch them. Young babies that uh, maybe needed to be held, perhaps uh, the the youngest um, baby, infants, it's the same word because it's it's the same thing. What's in the womb, what's outside the womb, it's the same thing. A person's a person, no matter how small, right? 
And so our commitments uh, to have just laws and be a just society and protect the murder of the innocent extends to the unborn. And at some level, all 50 states have laws that would, would speak to that issue. It is a felony in California to intentionally kill a baby in the womb if it's done in a, in a, in a criminal, premeditated kind of way, just not when it's done in an abortion clinic. So at some level, we all get that. But again, we need to make it not just illegal, but unthinkable. So we finish with Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, purpose and our labor. So humanity is multiplying. It's becoming more sophisticated. Cultures uh, are being developed. And then you get the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And you get this summary statement about what's in their hearts as they build the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11.4, then they said, come, and this is, this is all, all the Babylonians, because Babel and Babylon are the same thing. All the Babylonians say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their self-identified purpose in this labor was to make a name for themselves. So they're reaching for heaven not to seek the Lord. They're reaching for heaven to make a name for themselves. Their human endeavor, their human ingenuity, their human productivity is to be significant, to be remembered, to build their own legacy, to make a name for themselves. And they went about it in the absolute wrong way. Now, in the storyline of Genesis, that picture is a total contrast to Noah who also built something very impressive. He built an ark. But in the descriptions of Noah, he's doing it for a very different purpose than the Babylonians built their tower. So in chapter 6, verse 9, we, see, we read this about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. And as a, as a result of that, God says to build an ark. Very specifically, do this, don't do that. Here's how you do it. So Brad's estimate was that it would take 70 years. We don't know if Brad's right on that, but Brad's estimate was it took Noah 70 years to do that. It was an impressive feat, but he didn't do it to build a name for himself. It says in, at the end of the chapter, verse 6, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Why did he do it? Because God commanded it. Ultimately, why was he doing it? To build a name for God, not himself. One of the sad realities of those uh, seeking abortions, and this, would, this wouldn't uh, cover every instance, not by no means, but some. Some of those seeking abortions, is, is it to, to some of them, they have a, a, a vision of their own life to build a name for themselves in a very particular way, and a child is simply a hindrance to that. It's an obstacle to that. And so they're going to take care of the child because they want to maintain this name for themselves, which they have defined and they've identified. On the Planned Parenthood website, they have a series of questions to help you if you're trying to decide whether or not to have an abortion. And so they give you questions like this. What would it mean for my future 
if I had a child now? What would it mean for my family if I had a child now? How would being a parent affect my career goals? Would having a baby change my life in a way I do or don't want? Would having an abortion change my life in a way I do or don't want? Now, it's one thing to ask questions like that before you're pregnant. That can be just responsibility. Am I in a place to have a child? Am I ready for the responsibility? Am I in a position? It, it can be a helpful question to think about, that basic sense of, is this the right time? <clears throat> but once you have the child, once the child is in the womb, well, you know what to do now. You, you know, it will affect your career goals. It will affect your life, absolutely. No question on that. But those questions are... In some ways, are just different versions of getting at that issue of making a name for yourself. You know, you want to make a name for yourself. Is a, is a baby consistent with that? And if it's not consistent, well, then Planned Parenthood, could, Planned Parenthood can, can take care of that for you. But our lives are not our own. We belong to God first as a creature made in his image. We belong to him, absolutely accountable to him obligated to him, and we are here to make much of God's name, not ourselves. Now, it's possible that in making much of God's name that our name does become greater than we might, might expect, but that's not why we're doing what we're doing. Ultimately, what we're doing, we do because of God's name, to make a name for him, not ourselves. First Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, having children, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. It's his name we want to make much of, not our own name. So yes, may abortion in the U.S. be not just illegal, but also unthinkable. So how should we respond? Well, here's three quick things, and then we want to think about God's mercy. Three quick things. First, have biblical convictions about this issue. Biblical convictions about this issue. If you don't have them, develop them. Have biblical convictions about this issue. And second, be part of a church that is clear on this issue. If you're part of this church, hopefully you feel like that's true. Be part of a church that is clear on this issue. And then third, just consider, consider how you might personally get involved in this, in this cause. You know, it's volunteering your time, giving your money. You know, giving to the church here at Cornerstone, you are giving some, some portion that does go to uh, pro-life causes. But maybe you want to give more on your own. Some of us are involved in Gateway Women's Center. Our church gives to North Carolina Right to Life. You can be an advocate for children in a whole variety of ways. Um, the, the school that we heard about in Africa that... that Ken Hour was a part of, that is it, being an advocate for children. There's a, there's a sense in which you're, you're fighting against abortion by supporting children in various ways and, and those practical kinds of ways. But at least consider. Consider how the Lord might want you to be involved in this cause. But we end with a, a word about God's mercy. Laced throughout Genesis and the whole Bible 
amidst all the sobering language about sin and God's punishment against sin is this thread of mercy. His mercy is there. And I know some of us deeply, profoundly need mercy when it comes to this issue. It could be that you carry personal regrets about having or being part of someone else having an abortion. And you carry that around, like just kind of like a, a 500-pound weight. It's just always with you. But please, just receive God's mercy. It's available in Christ. Our sins are huge. It, it doesn't help us to minimize our sins. But God's mercy is bigger. It's, it's bigger than our sins. In Christ, it's bigger than our sins. And the truth is, you can't change your past. It's fixed. But you can let God redeem your past. He can do that. You can't, once again, we can't change our past, but we can let God redeem it. He's in the business of redeeming terrible situations. Empty, broken vessels. He redeems them. He delights in doing that, in fact. He's not begrudging as he does that. He delights in redeeming. One of the great personal, uh, uh, one of the great moments of personal ministry uh, in, the, in the life of Christ is when he encounters the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He initiates a conversation with her. She has no, she has no idea where it's going to go. He, has every, he, he knows exactly where it's going to go. And as, as they're having this conversation, he, he, he reminds her, he tells her prophetically, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. That's her life. Now, she could choose not to live with the person she's living with. That's true. But those five husbands she had and whatever circumstances or surrounding those that, uh, five different husbands, she can't change that. And she likely lives with a deep, profound regret and a sense of loss, inadequacy because of that past. She cannot change that past. But she can let Christ redeem it. So as, as Jesus walks, in some ways, walks her through her past, he then tells her this in, in verses 13 and 14. He says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, you know, the water at this well, that, that, that's, that's where they met. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This broken vessel of a woman in front of her, Jesus is saying, there will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You can be redeemed. And in fact, she would be redeemed. She would let Christ redeem her. She's given new life, new purpose. By the end of the, of the chapter of, in John 4, she's a missionary to her people. And many are saved because of her witness testimony. Her, her past remains her past. Jesus didn't erase her past, but he did redeem it. You know, her past now became part of her story. You know, come here, a man who told me everything I ever did. I explain my past, you know, as she's giving her testimony. As I explain my past and all, of, and all the things that had happened, and he, he described all the things that had happened to me, well, then he gave me eternal life. 
And so her past then became part of her testimony. Not just a regret she carried around, but it became part of her testimony. Now, not all things in our past we'd want to make part of our testimony and the thing that we share with people as we're sharing the gospel. Sometimes the way that's redeemed is that becomes a, a permanent source of humility and a permanent source of prayer and gratefulness. And we just carry around with us a deep awareness. God can save you. He can redeem you. And, I, and I'm not going to tell you all the reasons why I know that, but I know it to be true. And it affects how you share the gospel because you know that he redeems people. He redeems our past. You know, the regrets are there. The consequences of past actions can still be there. And yet, redemption. Praise God for that. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, just a beautiful picture of abundance, life, joy, replenishment to this woman who was so broken. So wherever you are, hear that. Hear that mercy. There's mercy in Christ. Mercy available through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's so much to think about, so much to pray about with this issue. We, we do pray that you would help us to think rightly and live rightly according to these truths in your scripture. You speak so, so clearly about personhood in the womb, all persons being made in the image of God, our call and commitment as your people and as just people to protect the innocent. So Lord, give us wisdom. If there's, a, if there's a way you want us individually as families to be involved in this, in this issue in a new way, would you just make it clear to us as a church? If there's a new way you want us as a church to be involved, make it clear to us. And we do pray that more and more, year by year, conversation by conversation, that in America and throughout the world, abortion would become more and more unthinkable as scientific knowledge increases and the reality of the development of that person in the womb becomes so obvious and undeniable. Lord, would abortion just more and more and more become unthinkable? Let it become almost irrelevant what the laws are in any given land because people just would never do it. We know, Lord, that that's not likely to happen in this realm where sin and the devil are rampant. And yet we pray for it, Lord. We pray for it. We pray for the laws in North Carolina to be better, to be stronger in this area. The laws in our 50 states to be better and stronger in this area. We pray for Bible-believing churches and Bible-believing pastors to preach more truthfully on these issues, more honestly, more robustly in a biblically clear way. And we pray for the churches that are preaching and it's not even clear that they're actual churches. They're churches in name only. Lord, would you just shut their doors? But they just run out of money and go out of business. Lord, raise up your people. Raise up your church. As much as we can be, Lord, let us be prophetic voices in our day. Let us be the conscience of our culture. Let us speak truth graciously, redemptively, but let us speak truth, Lord. 
not to make a name for ourselves, but that your name, your name alone would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.